BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It is the 1990s, and a young Washu is growing up in Cupertino. He's mediocre at math, loves obscure music, and despises Pearl Jam, of course, and communicates with his tech executive father in Taiwan, largely through the facts. He creates his sense of self by setting himself against things, writing diatribes that he publishes in his zine. Then he lands at UC Berkeley, where he forges an unlikely friendship with Ken, a Japanese-American frat boy and lover of the Dave Matthews Band. Their friendship and its tragic end form the core of Shu's new memoir, Stay True, and he joins us here in the studio to talk about racial identity in the late 90s, the best version of God Only Knows, and being friends. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The fax machine was a magical piece of technology when I first saw it in my parents' home office. From all over the world, anyone could send you a smudgy scroll as easily as they could photocopy a flyer. In the mornings, I'd watch as faxes rolled in for my parents, the paper curling off the back of the machine. In Stay True, Washu's pitch-perfect and gutting new memoir about his emerging adulthood, the fax machine, the perfectly 90s object, is also his tether to his father, who has returned to Taiwan after decades in the U.S., their delicate faxes about Kurt Cobain's death, a reminder of the strangeness of how we form and keep bonds with our loved ones, turning mundane objects into vehicles for meaning and transcendence. And I can assure you that in this brilliant book, anything can become infused with incandescent meaning from a 24-hour Kmart down 880 to an Abercrombie jacket at a mall in the San Diego suburbs. Joining us to talk about Stay True, welcome, Washu. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks. <laughs> so I want you to lay out this scene for us. We didn't know each other back then. Cupertino, 1995. Introduce us to the you of that time. Like, what, <laughs> what are you wearing? What are you doing? Oh, what an embarrassing question. So <laughs> in 1995, I was 18. Um, and so I think I was very much in the throes. Anyone who was kind of sentient in the 1990s in America recognizes that there were certain people who were like radicalized by Nirvana and alternative rock in 120 minutes. I was certainly one of these people. So I was definitely wearing like my dad's old lab coats, you know, my grandpa's flannels. I was very much into being different from everyone around me. So uh, in Cupertino, you know, uh, the sort of crown jewel of Silicon Valley suburbs, it wasn't that hard to be different from everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's something that I worked very hard at. Yeah. Did you have pins and buttons on your stuff? 
Uh, yeah, and I, I think at the time, this might be a bit of a deep cut, but people were very into using whiteout to decorate their backpacks. Oh, I remember, yeah, yeah. the anarchy whiteout. Yeah, yeah, so I definitely had, you know, like a, like a Fishbone, the band Fishbone, like, logo uh, drawn on my Jansport with, with whiteout. So, yes, I was very much into accoutrements, adornments, ornamentation of any kind. Yeah. And you took some of that energy, right, and started to produce... Zine started to produce mixtapes, started to produce kind of these particular cultural objects of the 1990s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that. You know, I think it's probably just endemic to being a teenager, particularly in America, where you, you just want to figure out who you are. You know, it, it's sort of like this question that you're supposed to have an answer to, like, who am I? What do I believe in? And I think in the 1990s, particularly, but it still goes on in other mediums today. Uh, you know, you just want to make stuff. And I was very much drawn to, like, writing, zines, uh, figuring out my voice. by. Rev- I, I was a terrible musician, so I was like, I will, I will just review other people's music. I will write about other people's bands. And so uh, I would make zines and just sort of distribute them around, distribute in scare quotes, uh, around, like, coffee shops or, or record stores around the South Bay. What was it? Did yours have a name? <laughs> It had multiple names. Uh, one of them was called Pop Scene. It's named after a Blur song that I was particularly into. And then later on, it, it morphed into a zine called Hella, which I think is just a perfect and perfectly Bay Area word. <laughs> yeah, mine was called Reckless Abandon. Um, I also was a zine maker, and I loved the, that era, in part because it did feel like it almost like prefigured the way internet writing and kind of the, the the torrent of new forms that kind of come around with yeah. email and, and these, you know, new types of media. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's so many things you don't realize when you're young. You, you, know, you know, like, I wouldn't have thought that what I was on a search for was, like, my own identity. Yeah, I thought I was just, you know, writing record reviews and trying to make friends. But writing a zine, later on writing email, AOL chat, Gchat, today, text, these are all genres of writing. And they have their own conventions, and you're just sort of figuring them out as you go along. And it was it was it was thrilling, you know. I, I think it's probably an experience that people have nowadays. On I don't know, like at the risk of sounding 400 years old, like TikTok or, <laughs> or like Snapchat. Like you realize that there's this sort of genre convention for how these things work, and then you try and figure out like a way to do it in your own kind of left way. Yeah, it's practically the the game. It's just figuring out those media conventions. Yeah, and you know. One of the things I loved about this book is your your love for archives and old things comes across. You know, you go to archives and academic institutions, you go through old radical newspapers and and find, you know, and even photocopy out pieces for your for your zines. Like what do you get from those objects, like those things from the past that, you know, distillations of those things or stories about them or histories wouldn't get you? That's an interesting question. Um you know, I think when we're young, you know, when, when, we're, when we're small children, our world is defined by the household. And, you know, like, I was definitely the kind of person who would just paw through all of my parents' things, you know, just, like, try on their clothes, like, look at their old notebooks, look at their old books, try and figure out who they were before I came along. And so whether it was unique to me or, or just sort of part of growing up, like, I think I was just always fascinated with the objects in our house, like, why did this pin survive all these years? Like, why did my parents keep this paperback of Future Shock all of these years? Like, ha- have they read this book? And so 
I think as I grew older, it just became an excuse to hoard things and be a pack rat. Um, and, and so, yeah, I've always been fascinated with just the material culture of the past, as, as you would say, like as an academic, just yeah. that, you know, there are certain things that you can learn by talking to someone or by, you know, reading the newspaper from back in the day. But there's there's a different engagement you have with like holding that newspaper and, and feeling it and then turning it over and looking at the back. Like I think back to how, um, you know, I, I was very into magazines. I'm still into magazines, right? I, I'm I'm a sort of weird collector of old magazines now. And you get, you can sort of engage with what people were talking about by looking at the website that has, has clipped the article that was important. But it's so different to pick up the magazine, look at the ads, look at the letters, the editor, all of these things that haven't necessarily made it on to like kind of the digitization of culture in the 90s. And so I don't know. I would just, I'm just super into that kind of like marginalia and, and ephemera. Yeah. You know, for your looking for your parents and the objects that they had saved, I mean, what did you come to learn about music from your dad specifically? My parents, they, they immigrated separately from Taiwan in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, they didn't have this kind of fixed vision of America. They weren't coming to necessarily pursue the American dream, I think, uh, not in any conscious way. You know, they were just trying to further their education. But they both really liked American music and got into it even more deeply when they came. And so my parents always had this pretty impressive record collection. I, I would say it was impressive. They had It was just like very canonical 60s and 70s music, um, like very little filler, like just like all, all smash hits, you know? <laughs> it was like, it was a great collection. But I think as a kid, I was very much into, you know, not replicating my parents. So I thought music was really uncool because I thought it was something that adults were into. And it wasn't until probably like middle school, high school, I thought, oh, no, I actually have this library here that's that can be a key component of like who I am. Um, but, you know, I, I think I definitely learned how to listen to music by watching my parents listen to music. Mm. My parents had uh, an incredible record collection also, though most of the hits had actually been cherry-picked by my oldest sister. So it was sort of like things that were like <laughs> Sub Rosa kind of hits, and then a lot of Chuck Mangione, which apparently my <laughs> mom really liked. And you know, I just want to say on your, on your parents and on sort of their understanding of sort of what they were getting into coming to the U.S., you have this like beautiful uh, phrase where you say, my parents weren't drawn to the United States by any specific dream, just a chance for something different. And I think, you know, this, it, that sensibility that you have really makes this feel almost like a, the next generation of a particular kind of immigrant narrative or second mm -hmm. generation immigrant narrative that, you know, they're, you give them their kind of full humanity in a way that I think sometimes the second gen narratives don't. <laughs> mm. yeah, I, I hope they think that too. Um, uh, but I, I did try to steer clear of, um, you know, like I, there are a lot of tropes around immigrant identity and immigrant culture and sort of particularly among Asian Americans that the first generation has arrived and that their struggles are what 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 sort of produced the lives of the second generation but my parents were always very blunt about the fact that their struggles were for themselves and that <laughs> I wasn't sort of indebted to them as a result yeah. of this like they just happened to be here I happened to come along and you know you're free to do whatever you want you should work hard but we didn't do all of this just for you, which I think is sort of this common trope among Asian American families that like you owe your parents all of this stuff because they made all these sacrifices. But 
uh, whether they were themselves trying to be different or not, they always tried to uh, not not sort of like live in that narrative. Yeah. So you your dad goes back to Taiwan to work as a executive, right? And you end up then communicating with him via fax. I was wondering if, you know, now when you look at these faxes, which are so tender and warm and, and real, do you imagine him, like, in his office, like, waiting for your faxes now? You know, like, how did you imagine what, what was on the other side of that fax machine? Well, when I was 14 or 15, I didn't imagine anything because I think when you're a teenager, you're sort of contractually obliged to, like, not think about your parents that much, <laughs> you know, or to to kind of disregard their, their like, best intentions. So I was very much just mining his faxes for the math homework he was giving me and then just sort of ignoring all the like actual fatherly advice. But now I look back and I do find it incredibly moving. Um, and I, I mentioned this to him recently and he was like, ah, I was just, I don't even remember doing all of this. But uh, I think back now and think about how, you know, solitary of an experience that must have been for him to move back and, and mm-hmm. sort of be working without the rest of his family and just to be sending me these, these, um, notes of encouragement and advice and sort of his own insight and for me to just kind of write back a pro forma like yeah you should check out the new Soundgarden album thanks <laughs> thanks for the geometry homework like I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow or something I just thought the loveliest thing was it, which you you know described the book is him saying what do you think and that when every time that comes up in one of those factors it just as a as a dad it just broke my heart imagining that he's just like sending this Lifeline out, like, please write back. What do you think? What do you think? Um, we're talking with New Yorker writer Washu about the Bay Area in the 90s zines, mixtapes, and his new memoir, Stay True. What are your favorite zines that you remember from the Bay Area in the 1990s? Extremely specific call out today. Uh, give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Of course, you can also maybe just ask questions of Washu and this new memoir. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Living in a hateful world, 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 living in a
Uh-huh. Somebody really uh-huh. Everybody wanna test the stuff In this means instead of easy to fall Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. That was, of course, Bone Thugs and Harmony. We're joined by New Yorker writer Washu. We're talking about his new memoir, Stay True. So uh, you write in your book, there are many currencies to friendship. We may be drawn to someone who makes us feel bright and hopeful, someone who can always make us laugh. Perhaps there are friendships that are instrumental where the lure is concrete and the appeal is what they can do for us. There are friends we talk to only about serious things, others who make sense in the blitzed merriment of deep night. Some friends complete us, while others complicate us. So the spine of this book is really about your friendship with Ken. So what kind of friend was Ken? How does he fit into this kind of typology you've created? You know, like, as we were saying before, I was was very drawn to being different and sort of you know, taking my taste very seriously. Like I was, I was quite an elitist as a teenager, as I'm sure many people are. Um, and when I first met him in the dorms at Berkeley in 1995, I found him to be like, you know, just sort of this like generic mainstream person. And as a result, I think I just didn't really give people a chance, you know, people who were kind of actually kind and open-hearted and all these things. And that was certainly who he was. Like, and I, I think... A lot of those insights, like what you just read, those are things I only recognize in retrospect. I think it's very hard to just appreciate the kind of banality of friendship and just sort of like how much of friendship comes around when you're bored with someone and being able to like just pass time with someone. But Ken was just like this, you know, very confident, or at least my projection upon him was he was just this confident, like nice person who, um, you know, was, was really curious and had these big aspirations for himself and for people around him. He, like, he, he believed in his friends. And I wasn't necessarily the type of person who, who wanted that energy. Like, I just wanted people who knew all the same esoteric <laughs> references to me. And so, um, you know, but, but then you sort of realize that the, the friends who stick around and ask you questions and sort of kind of prod at you sometimes are the ones who are actually the ones who will be there for you. And he was the kind of person who would always be there for you. So you kind of needed something that would allow you to get some kind of activation energy to start that friendship, though, right? So how did you, like, do you remember the moment where you were like, okay, we are now being, <laughs> we are now forging something beyond passing in the hallway? <laughs> yeah, I remember it very, very vividly. He, uh, he was in a fraternity, something that I, I found appalling at the time because it was not kind of, what the kind of thing that I would do. And he had asked me to help him shop for a party at his house. And I was like, ah, I would never go to a frat house party, but sure, I'll help you. Clearly, you recognize that I know how to buy You knew where cool the weird clothes, clothes were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it turned out that he he didn't think my clothes were cool, but that they, just, they were just very weird and that they would help him stand out at the party. But he was just so gleeful as we were just going through these secondhand shops down Telegraph. And I just had a lot of fun hanging out buying weird clothes for him and uh after that he was like we should hang out i'm like well not at your frat house but like yeah (laughs) let's you know get a burrito or something so you know it's really interesting i mean how did you go about trying to construct which i think you do just extremely effectively this like beautiful male friendship right i mean it's like there's there might be lots of tropes and models for you know, telling immigrant stories. Yeah. But like male friendships, you know, I was talking with our producers, there's all these amazing books about women who are friends, you know? Yeah. Entire Neapolitan novel series, right? Yeah. 
But like, were you able to draw on other literary histories? I, I couldn't think of one that's, that's just built on male friendship. You know, I was just talking to someone about this last night because it does seem like a lot of representations of male friendship are either, they're, they're on these extremes, right? It could be like the kind of uh, like super bad style, <laughs> like we're all like, uh, or yeah. dazed and confused, right, that right, kind of right. like, where, but where it's all sort of couched in like comedy and irony. Um, and then there's sort of like the more romantic, where like Brokeback Mountain. Right, right, right. right. And this was probably at neither extreme, but I think it was it was actually very difficult to figure out how to write that because there weren't these models. What's interesting though is, you know, there aren't that many songs, I would say, that are just about friendship, right? There's tons of songs about love, mm-hmm. and I think that's how we learn what love is, right? We learn about love and heartbreak before we experience these things by listening to pop music. There aren't these anthems to friendship necessarily, but every song to me is like, an expression of friends doing something together. Like all of hip hop is people saying like, we will do something together. And so even though it's this sort of unstated theme of so many great rap songs, like that's the energy that's suffusing. I mean, like how much time do people have to spend together to be able to complete each other's verses or to, mm-hmm. you know, triple time? You know, like there's just so much about the art of it that I drew inspiration from, um, mm-hmm. even though like, Hmm. Hip hop, <laughs> there's there, there's no bars in the book the way that that <laughs> I'm describing, but yeah. um, but it is something that I thought about a lot, and and what I came kept coming back to is just how when you're in your late teens and twenties, like friendship is just forged through spending time, passing time, figuring out the next thing to do. It's not necessarily in the adventure; it's in those quiet moments, and mm-hmm. so figuring out how to write those moments was really a challenge, but it, it, it really, um, it was very kind of peaceful for me to do that. When it was, you know, this is 25 years ago now. How did you find those tiny moments? Were those all in memory? Were you journaling? Like, did you, was this kind of in this period after the friendship ended or before? Like how much attention had you been paying to those moments? I don't know that, I don't know that, I don't think I was any different than any other 21-year-old. You're not really paying attention to the quiet moments. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're just eager f- for the next adventure. You're eager for tomorrow. But um, you know, Ken was killed in 1998 and literally the day after it happened when we found out, I just started writing down everything. Like I I just became very fixated on figuring out how to protect something that I felt was slipping away. And I kept coming back to those quiet moments of like, you know, walking down Shattuck in Berkeley to go get burritos, what we would order, you know, how we sort of measured the growth in our lives and how our orders evolved. You know, like (laughs) we're getting older now we can get like an appetizer. Um, And so I had been actually writing a lot of these things down in my journals, you know, for the past 20, 24 years. Uh, But I didn't understand why or why they were meaningful or or like even potentially interesting to anyone but myself until fairly recently. We're talking with New Yorker writer Washu about his new memoir, Stay True. Kind of the heart of Stay True is about male friendship. And we're wondering, what have your male friendships meant to you, this under uh, under-acknowledged genre 
of uh, human experience, can you give us a call at 866-733-6786? That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQD Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. And, of course, we take your questions for WashU as well. Uh, One of our listeners, Doug, writes in to say, My favorite experience surrounding zines of the 80s was the journey I took to get to them and the insight into an individual's take on the world. I had to take the bus to Berkeley and go into places like Rasputin's and Tower and Comics and Comics to find them. And these adventures led to a love of music, street art, politics, and used things. You uh, describe in the book kind of dragging your friends around (laughs) to these like underground places. Um, what was a, you know, if you had a map of, uh, of Berkeley, like where were the places that you always made Ken go where he'd be like, oh boy, you know? <laughs> um, Amoeba, Cody's books. Uh, Amoeba is still there, but across the street was Cody's books. And it just had the most kind of dazzling section of periodicals I'd ever seen in my life. And so that was somewhere that we would often go um, just to look for magazines. I would look for zines. He would look for magazines. Um but yeah, I was I was always dragging friends to go. I, I would go to your store if you came to my store, and so it would be like Maud Lang, Amoeba, Rasputin's, uh, Cody's, Moe's. It was uh, just up and down Telegraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the themes of your friendship with Ken is also that you know you're Taiwanese American, he's Japanese American, but his family, you know, his roots like stretch back further. And even though you were both like. I'm air quoting here, Asian American, mm-hmm. there you you saw considerable distance between your identity and, and his. Yeah, and, and I think it's a distinction that probably is pretty illegible to most people who aren't Asian American, maybe even people who aren't Asian American of a certain generation. But like when your family immigrates makes a difference. It makes a difference in terms of your relationship to America, but also you know, how well your parents speak English, whether your grandparents speak English, um, your connection to this imagined homeland. And so when I first met him, you know, I knew I grew up with a lot of Japanese Americans in the South Bay who whose families had been here a long time and whose parents, you know, didn't have accents and who didn't necessarily seem to have a, an Asian American experience like mine, where my parents were kind of more newly immigrated. Um, and so, yeah, I think when we first started hanging out, I sort of thought like, ah, there's no way he could understand what, what I think or what I'm going through. Uh, but of course, that was just, a lot of that was just sort of hubristic projection of, of like a moralistic 18-year-old. Yeah. Well, and as time went on, his, your sense of his sense of his identity began to kind of destabilize and yeah, particular around kind of like representation. And I think at one point he says he's a man without a culture. Yeah. I, I think about that a lot, actually, because now that I'm much older, you, you know, like this happened, we were talking about these things when we were in our late teens and 20s, you know, just how, you know, there will never be a day when the, like Asian Americans are in Hollywood or on TV. And at the time, I didn't care that much because I was so into my own kind of DIY alternative world. You said we were too cool for that. Yeah, I was like, I, why would we? Why would I want to be on MTV? Like, we're too cool for that. Um, but I think I was probably also just being, uh, just protecting myself. Like, if you don't expect anything of the world, you'll never, you'll never be that disappointed. And in those moments when he would feel disappointed because he, I, I realized how much he actually wanted from the world. And I learned a lot 
in those moments. And I've thought about those moments a lot as I've grown older and he hasn't, you know, he hasn't been here to witness all of these things that are now, that we now take for granted, like, you know, uh, everything everywhere all at once and Minari and, mm-hmm. you know, fresh off the boat, all, all these things that we once thought were so impossible they weren't even worth thinking about are now just, you know, part of American culture. And so it's very strange to think back to, um, you know, our opposing views back then. Yeah. You know, and we should probably get to the key part of this book, which is um, Ken is killed, and it short circuits, like, all of this incredible friendship. Um, to the extent you can talk about it, do you tell us what happened? So between junior and senior year, uh, you know, just that summer, he had this housewarming party, and it was, you know, in Berkeley, and it was this sort of, I don't know, it was like an exciting moment. Uh, the fact that he called it a housewarming party, I think, made it seem like we were growing up. Like, it wasn't just a, a kegger or just yeah, a little yeah. party. It was like, this is There a might be glasses, party. not yeah. just solo cups. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, um, you know, we were, you know, he had this party. It was late summer. I was going to a rave so I stopped by earlier and um and you know we were sort of in the middle of this conversation and so much of our friendship was sort of conducted in in privacy it was just sort of like me and him driving around me and him smoking on balconies and and so it was very much just like we were we were going to spend so much of the next year on this balcony smoking cigarettes <laughs> talking um and and we were kind of looking forward to the future in the middle of something and then I had to go to this other party and that night he was um, going down to his car in the parking garage and he was carjacked and for reasons that the perpetrators have never quite been able to explain like it it escalated to the point where he was killed um, and uh, left on, uh, in, in an alleyway in in um, Vallejo and it's I don't know. It, it, he was, you know, they drove him around, withdrew money from various ATMs. It was just a, a horrific thing to think about. And um, it's something, it's a night that I've thought about a lot because I was there right before it happened. I drove by on the way home when, you know, I was coming back from the party that I'd gone to. And um, I always, you know, you just don't really think about finishing conversations when you're young you're just sort of mm-hmm. like well we'll just continue talking about this tomorrow mm-hmm. and um it was very shocking for everyone and i think for all of our friends it was just uh an experience that we've never really uh that, that we've taken into our lives in in different ways you know it's just something that affected us all very deeply and for me it was just this moment where i turned to writing in a very kind of obsessive way and what, what were you writing down? Inside jokes. Uh, you know, like when you lose the other person, the other keeper of the inside joke, you just fear like, you know, no one will, I'll not, I don't ever want to forget what this joke meant, you know. Uh, just random scenes, you know, just the sort of quiet stuff of friendship. Uh, I was writing a lot of letters to him directly just to kind of see if he was, you know, kind of, around in some yeah, spectral around, way. Yeah. Um, but I was really writing just to not be present, you know, just to go somewhere else because uh, we were just – it was summer. You know, we were all hanging out. 
all of our friends were around and sometimes I just felt like I needed to go somewhere else and the page was just another place to go. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of letters to him, letters to myself in the future, scraps of, of anecdotes, jokes, playlists. Well, it kind of, I mean, it's such like an infinity, like of senselessness, right? I mean, the absolute random violence, the, the epitome of random violence in this case, just absolutely senseless. Kind of makes sense to take to the page to try and make some yeah. meaning, sense making out of it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I I think I was under the impression that I could make sense of it by writing. You know, I think mm-hmm. when I was when I was twenty one, I was writing to figure something out. I had this. I still have this padded envelope full of just ephemera from like that night but also just from our friendship leading up to it and every now and then I would just look at everything and think like these are all clues to a story that I can tell Mm -hmm. but you know in reality there is no sense it's senseless like there's there's no way to actually wrap one's head around it or to figure out what or why it happened Um, all you can do is really think about how you bring this into your life as you move forward and that's not something I realized when I started writing. I was writing in order to just finish something, but I didn't realize that I was just kind of starting something that would never end, if that makes sense. Yeah. And here it is 20 years later, right? And yeah. this is when it's actually a complete package to to say, like, this is this is what happened, at least. If not, this is what it meant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, part of it is that I think because I was writing so much in those first few days, um, some friends said, well, you, you know, you should give the eulogy because you're clearly already writing everything down. And I felt like that eulogy, which everyone collaborated, like everyone sort mm-hmm. of contributed different lines, like it, it so captured how that moment felt that for years as a writer, I was chasing that feeling of just like, this is exactly how I feel right now. And it took a while to figure out what, how to do that. We're talking with New Yorker writer Washu about his new memoir, Stay True. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm here in the studio with Washu talking about his new memoir, Stay True. It's really a lot about male friendship. And even the song you just heard, Waterloo Sunset, he captured a moment of listening with a friend to this incredible song. And I just, I have that exact moment in my own brain and life of sitting with my friend Simeon Zoll, smoking cigarettes. Sorry, Mom. Outside uh, our dorm room, just listening to that song over and over, the most perfect song. Um, let's bring in uh, Jorge from San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, how are you guys? Hey, hey, we're good. Thanks for coming. Yeah, look, it just sounded like a great conversation. Um, it certainly resonated with me, so I was compelled to be uh, one of those cliches, uh, long-time listeners, first-time callers. <laughs> well, that's great, Jorge. I mean... You were going to talk to us, I think, about kind of what your male friendships were able to do for you. Yeah, so I think, you know, the idea of, of learning and, and growing through friendship really stands out for me. Um, emigrated to this country where my parents were, were very, you know, black and white. What's right, what's wrong? Um, and I went to college, and similarly, through friendships, I really learned you know, most of things are gray, and you're fortunate when things are, are that clear of right and wrong. Um, and through these friendships, I learned that, you know, what what I would consider uh, some of these points being. You okay, Jorge? Sorry, guys. Yeah, I just... I had a similar situation. Sorry, guys. Um, so these friendships were the guy that really showed me who I can be. Hmm. Oh, Jorge, I think we're losing you. This was going to play out this way. Um, I didn't think it was going to play out this way. I think I've, I've regained my composure. Oh. Um, so these friendships were really the way to kind of help me understand who I am and who I can be. And so for a long time, I would shy away from my heritage and what my abilities can be. And friends just kind of supported me. Um, So I, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to share that with you guys. Yeah. And thank you for having a conversation. Oh man, Jorge, thank you so yeah, much for that call. Thank you so much call. for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, that, and it's even it's a beautiful thing. Showed yeah. you like who, who you could be. Yeah, and I I feel like this is it's it's similar to things that I write about in the book where, you know, we we were so enamored with our parents and and so sort of we felt that they had sort of guided us in this way, but that it was now up to us to figure out who we were for ourselves. And only friends could really do that for, for us in that moment. You know, and it's sort of like they show you what's possible. They mo- you model sort of for each other who you can become. And it's just, I don't know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that I just don't think gets, it, we, we experience it, but it's just not something that there, there, are, the, there are these forums, mm-hmm. no pun intended, to, to talk about, you know, just kind of how, um, you know, just sort of the, the impact that, a friend, even someone who just passes through your life mm-hmm. for a semester, or a couple years, um, can really kind of change 
not just who you are, but just the horizons you see and the possibilities you see. And uh, that was certainly the case for me and, and for Jorge as well. Yeah. Thank you. Jorge, thanks again for that call. Please call, call back again. Um, <laughs> we'll take your call anytime. I, uh, is there something about, I mean, I think you know, we just heard it in Jorge. I was getting choked up listening to him even think about this. And, of course, through your book, thinking about some of these friendships that I've had, uh, there were there were some some tears shed there too. I mean, is there something about those young adulthood kind of college friendships for men that are so significant? Because you know, if you look at the kind of sociological research, men are really lonely. Men are really kind of struggling to make friends when they're older and maintain friendships as they you know have families or move jobs or do these these other things. It, it just kind of feels like a lot of us are kind of now or never. You know? Yeah, I. I do think that. I mean, I. It's funny because you know, in society, there there are very few things where where like you could say that like masculinity is under discussed. <laughs> you know, like it's sort of. Uh, but it's true that I think that there are certain aspects of being, uh, you know, just like self-expression and vulnerability. These aren't necessarily things that society teaches like a young man to feel. Or, or to embrace or to share vulnerabilities with others. And, you know, I teach college students now, and, and I think that it seems like there's more openness now and, and more sort of possibilities for people to share things, but it's also very polarizing. There, it seems like in, in other aspects, there, there's no space at all for that, right? And so I do feel like that is a very formative time because you're not yet really an adult but you're not a kid necessarily. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're, you're for a college freshman, a college senior is basically just like, that is, <laughs> that is the apex of adulthood, you know? Yeah. And, and so I do feel like there's something probably wider in society. These weren't things I was thinking about as I was writing the book, but now that I've had these conversations with people, I do feel like there is just a period of kind of young male adult, like pre-adulthood that is probably more pivotal than I realized at the time mm -hmm. that like you're you're seeing these models for how to be a quote unquote man and um, it's the first time that it's so proximate to you mm. you know there's a moment in the book that you recount where you were gathered with some college friends in New York and one of them I think it's Gwen yeah. asks you you know were you even really close to Ken what what happened to you in that moment when when she asked you that I I I had to wonder whether her question, whether she was right, you know, and I think part of it is that I was so fixated on the past that I hadn't really tried to move forward. Uh, I mean, I had just sort of in the course of life, but I think mentally, psychically, I was still very much just stuck in the past. And so when you continue telling yourself the same story over and over, you sort of wonder, like, is this is this an accurate story? Like, am I just retelling myself the same few anecdotes and sort of imagining this intimacy that, that actually wasn't there? And I, I actually think in reading the book, you could definitely read it and interpret it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's probably a way in which you never know how close you are to someone. Like, you never really understand where you stand in each other's lives because if that narrative of friendship is unbroken— you know, there are times when you're closer, there are times when you're distant. There is a constancy, but you're not really thinking about these things in the moment. You're just sort of being friends. 
creating new memories. But once that chain of memories is broken, then you sort of begin hoarding them and thinking about them and sort of maybe uh, projecting meaning onto all of them. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was like, well, I, I, I was, but I know that there's also a way in which, like, I'm telling a story about myself mm-hmm. through him. And, and other people have stories about him that, you know, clearly have nothing to do with me, so. Yeah. Did you show the book to your group of friends that had been around before it came out? Like, did you have them say, is this how you remember it? Or did you not want to do that? I, you, you know, if you, if you read the book, there are these moments where I, am, I doubt my own memory. And I really wanted, because so much of my experience of it was just kind of hoarding these memories and thinking about these things that like only he and I did together. I I kind of wanted that haze of memory to be part of the book. And so part of that required me to just write most of it from memory. So I didn't really talk to my friends about it as I was writing it, partly because I didn't know what I was doing. So there's no sense in which I could say like, this is a story of X, Y, and Z. What do you remember about it? Um, after I finished a draft, I did share it with um, quite a few friends, like basically anyone who's in the book, like maybe three or four times. And, um, and, and you know, sometimes they would say, like, you, you actually misremembered this. <laughs> um, and I usually just kept it as is because so much of it is written from the perspective of memory. It's not necessarily right. a work of, like, history. Right. It's not actually as as archives it seems but um in in sort of extreme cases i did change stuff and and some people's names are changed too i mean so the the book's title you've got stay true where did the kind of stay true come from in your relationship with with ken it was just the silly joke um there was a handshake that went with it, a quite elaborate handshake, actually. Um, not by 2022 standards, but by, <laughs> by the standards of 1997, an elaborate handshake. And it was just something we would say to each other. It was like an email sign-off, a sign-off when we wrote letters. Um, funnily, in a way, like, I don't remember where it came from. Like, it was the kind of thing that in that immediate aftermath, I wrote, like, and I will never forget why we started saying this. But of course, I didn't bother to write it down, so I don't remember the full, like, etymology of, of this <laughs> phrase. But, you know, it was just a phrase that um, I thought about a lot. And when I would write him in my journal in, like, 98, 99, 2000, I would always write, like, you know, stage true at the end mm-hmm. of it. And it does have this sort of double—I mean, there's, there's a way in which it, it has a new meaning in the book, because I think when I was younger, I thought— being true to yourself was just sort of reaching this point of being like, this is who I am. I am the finished article. Like, this is who Mm -hmm. I'm meant to be. But, you know, that's just not how life is. Life is a process. You're constantly changing. And so staying true, I guess for me, just means something different now. It's more about just kind of being attentive and thoughtful to who you are in a moment and how a moment can change you. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily thinking that, you know, the answers are all out there or that the finished story is out there. Hmm. So, I mean, you had this in you for, you know, quite a long time. What do you think happened inside yourself that allowed you to process this enough to write this story and and, and have to go out on shows like this and many <laughs> others 
talking about this experience? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, uh, I'm not sure what, what changed or what happened. I do know that what I real, one thing I learned from this process, you, you know, like when I started writing in 1998, I didn't think I would write a book. I just thought that I would, you know, be working on something in, my, in a personal journal for the rest of my life. And at the time, I was just very fixated on just picking up all of these details from the past and talking about, you know, how, how sad we all were and just sort of living inside that grief. And I think over the course of writing it, I realized that you can be happy and sad at the same time and that, and that celebrating all the joy and ecstasy we shared doesn't diminish the tragedy of losing him, you know, and that's something that I didn't allow myself to think or feel um, until I started writing stuff down. Because when I started writing about that period of time, I I felt like I was hanging out with us still. Like I felt like we were just on a couch eating chips, watching the Padres. Like it was not happy or sad. It just was. And mm -hmm. being able to kind of live in that moment, but also realize that this is like a sad story, that there's a tragedy to the story, but also just kind of celebrating these moments of kind of friendship and the, the banal ecstasy of friendship. That doesn't abandon him. That doesn't leave him behind. It actually just kind of brings him to life in a way. That's not something I, I set out to do. That's, a, that's a, not something I thought was possible until I wrote it. And then I was like, you know what, this is actually happy and sad at the same time. And, and that's okay. I also wonder when you have had something like this lodged in your heart for this long and you're able to kind of move it into mm -hmm. the public realm or something or move it out of your body in some ways, what kind of goes in there? Like, do you do you have a new project that now is like <laughs> is able to come forth? Because, you know, this thing that had been really deeply, you know, that you'd been circulating through for so long, now you're like on a new highway, you know? Yeah, I don't, it's weird because it was so, you know, I've been writing for 20 years, and this has always just been in the back of my head, although it hasn't really been something that I've referenced in any of my journalism for all these years. Mm -hmm. And so it does feel like I have moved something out from, like, here to here. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know what goes, what comes next. I mean, I am, I am writing a series of essays that will be in a book called Imposter Syndrome, which is <laughs> supposed to come out in in 2020 something <laughs> I'm not sure when <laughs> but um, I'm still just kind of processing that that Ken is now a character in other people's lives yeah. you, you know that he's he'll never be forgotten by people who never met him you know and there's something mm -hmm. really honestly strange to me about that but also like quite beautiful that like people who never had the chance the luck the the, the, the privilege of meeting him now, you know, find something, you know, like charming and relatable and funny and, and honorable and, and, and brave in his story. Um, and, and that's tremendously weird, but also like, you know, something that I, I find to be like very moving. Yeah. Well, it's such a precise rendering of him, too. 
we've got some comments. Just want to uh, get through a few. Two, uh, Ethan writes in to say, two books immediately come to mind when I think about great stories of male friendship. Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Mm. And more recently, but not especially recently, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by my close to neighbor, Michael Shaben. Uh, Alexi writes in to say, thanks for this great interview. The experience you describe um, uh, you know, of zine making and things reminds me so much of my own teen years growing up in West Philadelphia in the mid and late 1980s. I loved punk rock and super obscure music and culture as well, and actually ended up becoming a musician. Now I'm a jazz musician and human rights org staffer at Cal, and some of the jazz guitarists wow. I play with now, a little younger than me, started out covering Nirvana and Pearl Jam songs <laughs> at their high school talent show. Shows. It all comes full circle. The DIY <laughs> subversive spirit of that time still informs who I am. And I like to think they're still, you know, out in the streets, teenagers doing like exactly the kind of things we were doing. Oh, but yeah. Just yeah. with the new material of the times. Oh, and I'm, I'm sure they think that you and I are extremely corny. Yeah, and that's so great. ancient. That's <laughs> yeah, totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, they must. Yeah. They must Please think do. We're yeah. Um, and one listener writes in to say, I can't remember what it was called, but I remember reading a hacker zine that I would go pick up at Streetlight Records. Oh, yeah. There was one called 2600. Was that? Yeah. Well, there yeah. was. Yeah, there was 2600. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, finally, we want to note uh, Washu is going to be at Books, Inc. Berkeley tonight at 730 with Tommy Orange. That's an awesome one. And on Friday at Green Apple Books on the Park at 7 with Jose Vadi. Um, you excited about this? I'm thrilled. I can't wait. <laughs> Tonight's going to be very emotional, but um, I'm I'm so thrilled to be back. So. Yeah, we're going to go out to uh, one of my favorite versions of God Only Knows. This is the Langley School uh, Music Project, which was a record that when uh, Juan and I were not old corny guys was very <laughs> cool uh, in the early 2000s. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Washu, new memoir is Stay True. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.